there are patterns and habits that uh, we start and stop from time to time. One of those that I'm trying to do is uh, uh, take a Hebrew and Greek text of the Tanakh and the and the uh, New Testament and look at those, even if I'm not reading them, to look at them to remind myself of the giving of those texts, those sacred texts, of which we have translations that we study and pour over regularly, that we may hear His Word and that we may do it. We're in a series that introduces and explains the Disciple Center. Uh, We're getting near the end of that. I think probably I'll be done next week, uh, the rate things are going. Uh, I've been trying to cover uh, aspects of a statement that... uh, that we have put out about the uh, Disciple Center, and I want to read that again. Uh, The Disciple Center congregation is a relational, liturgical, and multi-denominational gathering of households, uh, families and individuals, in community for mutual worship, discipleship, ministry, and reconciliation. We are Judeo-Christian in theology and practice, We function as a private congregation for the purpose of protecting the integrity of the members and to maintain focus on discipleship. Members of the congregation also participate in public ministry beyond the congregation and as an extension of the congregation ministry and in concert with other congregations, ministry organizations, and fellow believers. We also seek to provide witness to a to the message of God through our lives and activities by intentional living and explaining the good news found in Jesus to the Jew first and also to all peoples. Now, we've gone through quite a bit of this. We're down to the last uh, couple of statements. The one about public ministry, which I want to address today, and then the one about uh, sharing the good news. I've talked a little bit about evangelism versus discipleship when I talked about the priorities. But I really want to spend some time, and I'll do that next week, on the presentation of the gospel. Though I will address it a little bit in this, in this message as well. Uh, we come to the place where we think about the private congregation and public ministry. And that sounds odd to some people's ears, but it actually is a very normative part of, of our faith. Um, The idea of a private congregation with a public ministry uh, is not as unusual as it seems because historically religious organizations were seen as private entities that provided in some sense public service or ministry. The word service and ministry work all has the same basic notion as a matter of their normal operation. And the amount to which a private congregation could engage in public ministry is often dictated by the relationship of the church to whatever government they find themselves under. And uh, so I need to talk about that, but I I, want to make it clear that uh, there has always been in Judaism and Christianity the idea of private congregational family and corporate ministry but also a need to uh, express beyond the congregation into the public sphere. 
The question is how is that done and what is the point of doing that? And that's what I want to talk about today. So I want to begin with the idea of church-state relationships and probably could go on for a whole um, uh, series on that. Don't have time to do that. I, I waited in my undergraduate um, classes to uh, take political science the last semester before I graduated with my undergraduate degree. And um, when I got in there, the, uh, the, it was being taught by the president of the university. He has to teach one class a year, and he said, uh, I'll teach that one because he was a political scientist. So I go into the class, and there he is, and uh, he says, your entire uh, grade is going to depend on how you integrate what we talk about all semester into one paper on one subject, and you will pick the subject. Well, I knew something about political theory, but I wasn't. It's not my. It's not my big thing. So I thought I know what I'll do. I'll talk about the relationship of church and state, and I'll have a, a handle on that because of my religious background. So I, when it came time to put the paper in, I put the abstract of what I was going to do the paper in, and he called me in. And I thought, uh-oh. He's going to tell me you can't do this. He says, I am thrilled with your choice for a paper. My dissertation was on church-state relationships. So I'm looking forward to reading your paper. Man. So, I have a lot of information here. I just am not going to bring it up at this point. You know? Be careful what you do. You know. So, I'm going to talk about four different relationships between a government and, and a religious community. Uh, and we'll use the traditional terms for that, church and state. By church, I just simply mean a religious community. And by state, I mean the authoritarian or the authority structure of the country that we find ourselves in. The first one is where the government completely rejects religion, or has a hostility to religion. The early period of Christianity, once it began to separate itself from Judaism, and it took a long time for that to happen, but there was a period where... Uh, Christianity, even the Gentiles, were seen as part of Judaism by the government, by the Roman government. And, and Judaism had a uh, protection from the Roman government that allowed them not to do incense to the emperor and to other gods. And Christians had that benefit for a while, but as they began to be identified more independent of the Jews their religion was no longer protected. It was not a illicit, it was an illicit uh, religion. And therefore, it fell under persecution. And the persecution, as you know, uh, if you've read history or you know at least from some media sources, involved the uh, uh, torture of Christians, putting them to the sword, putting them to lions, uh, putting them on uh, crosses and using them as lamps, lighting them on fire so that they were used as lamps 
for uh, parties. There was a terrible persecution of, um, of Christians uh, in the Roman Empire. And uh, there, to this day, is a black cross in the Colosseum. If you ever go there, you'll see it. This black cross that's a, uh, there as a memorial to those Christians who died, uh, who were martyred uh, under the Roman uh, persecution. Now, uh, there are many believers uh, today who live in countries where the faith is illegal and where... Uh, for whatever reason, uh, to name yourself a Christian, to seek to proselytize, or to do anything in a public ministry ways, puts your life in peril. Uh, and so, obviously, in that kind of setting, the public ministry of the religious community is, uh, is curtailed. Not that it doesn't happen, but it is, it is seriously curtailed. The second one is where you have government control of a state church. This is where the, the church structure and the, uh, the state structure are connected, but the power is in the government, not in the church. And where that happens, you have a situation where the church acts publicly as an agent of the state, with the goals and purposes of the state dictating what public services the church may do. Uh, this is beginning to develop in our own uh, government at the present time. While the government is beginning to determine what religion is allowed in public and what limits will be set on the conditions of religious public access. It's being done through conditional use permits, which prevent churches from operating during daylight hours. Parking regulations, which prevent people from having home Bible studies. And zoning uh, structures that say churches can only be in certain uh, zones instead of in neighborhoods where when I grew up there was a church in almost every neighborhood you could see. Um, and then the HHS mandate uh, regarding birth control is also part of it. To what extent can the church, uh, does the church have independence from the government uh, in terms of what it can do in a public setting? Now, this is a, this is a difficult uh uh, structure, but it is it, the pendulum is now swinging in our setting to that kind of a system, a government control of a uh, of what's allowed in public. Then there is the church controlled by the state, what's often called a theocracy. Uh, this is where the religious power actually controls the national power, and this uh, took place in uh, some areas of history certainly takes place in much of the uh, Muslim world or is wanted in much of the Muslim world. And oddly enough, there are Christians in America that want that as well. There are Jews in Israel that want that. There are Muslims in Muslim countries that want that. And there are Christians in Christian-dominated uh, countries that want you know, the law of God to be the law of the land. Okay? I tend to uh, get nervous whenever anybody talks about that. Because I believe that what it will do is create a corrupt religious structure and a corrupt governmental structure. And those who, who truly strive to obey God will find their greatest persecution that way. Remember that in most cases, religious persecution is, is uh, 
brought on by religious people against religious people. Uh, and and that's, that's a, a serious problem. And then there is the fourth one, a free church in a free state. This is the American ideal. The American ideal is difficult to maintain because the, if the religious role is entirely pri private, then government controls all public areas. And that's a problem. On the other hand, if there's freedom of public religion, how do you draw that line? What is allowed to be done? Okay? If you allow prayer in schools, do you allow the, the various prayer times of the various religious groups to let those children out of the classroom to go pray, right? Which would mean that Muslim kids and Jewish kids and Christian kids, not to say other religions, would be in and out of the classroom at all kinds of times. So the balance of how do you allow religious freedom in public and have a public uh, governmental structure is a difficult thing. Uh, the founding fathers said, we want a free church, we want a free state, we don't want the church telling the state what to do, the state telling the church what to do, which is great on a slogan, difficult in the doing, and then a free market so that the economy is not controlled by the church or the, or the state, and a free press that can tattle on the rest of them, right? So, uh, so that was the idea. Now, again, it looks great when you write it down, and I'm all for it, but the problem is there are people in the government and there are people in the church, and there are people in the economy, and there are people in the press. And they all have their own stuff, right? And as they get more powerful, the value systems collide, and then we have problems. And so we can talk about this as if all we have to do is just have a free church, a free state, a free... You know, it sounds good, but there's a real balancing act here. And it really is the fiddler on the roof. Okay, So, Baptists, our own background, were very influential in the idea of a free church in a free state. They, they were strongly behind the Bill of Rights in that context. Because Baptists had suffered by the hand of government in Europe, Anabaptists and early Baptists, and they had suffered by the state churches. They got nailed by both groups. So they didn't want big government or big church in control of the local congregation. And that's why Baptists tend to be independent. You know, the joke is said of the Jews and of Baptists. Two Jews, three opinions. Two Baptists, three opinions. That's, that's just how that works. Okay? So uh, we live presently in an environment where religious freedom is generally ours. But the balancing of government and church is becoming more heavy-handed on the government and court decisions so that we end up with prayer in the Supreme Court and prayer in Congress and no prayer in schools. I think that the structure is we want to get religion out of the public arena primarily where children are involved. And that has me somewhat concerned. On the other hand, I really don't want the government teaching religion to our children because I've seen how they teach history <laughs> and English and everything else. Okay? So uh, that's, that's a problem. So 
Having said that now, let's talk about what is private ministry, I mean, what is public ministry, and why, first of all, is ministry public? I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and I'll get into the, the real structure of this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 19. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Um, I'm going to keep going here. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter and not a stroke shall pass from the Torah until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever annuls the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, Jesus here is not talking to the church. And he is not talking to Christians who don't exist. He is talking to the remnant of Israel who have returned from Babylon and they have gathered in the land awaiting the restoration of Israel. And as he gives them this sermon on the mount, he says to Israel, you are the salt and if you lose your effectiveness, you're useless. You are the light, and that light cannot be private, it cannot be hidden, it has to be public. So I want you to understand, and I, if I had time I'd go into it, but I'll just give you the passages. In Genesis chapter 18, what we have is Abraham arguing with God over the destruction of Sodom. And what he says is, I'm going to destroy Sodom because of the evil that has come up before me. And Abraham says, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? If there are 50 people in the city who are righteous... Will you not spare the city? And God says, I will spare it for 50. And Abraham says, let me, let me just work with you here a little bit. What if there are 40? I will not destroy it for the 40. Well, what, what if there's 30? Let me just speak once more. What if there are 20? Let the Lord not be angry with me. I love the King James. Peradventure. There be ten. I will not destroy it for the ten. This idea of the minion, the ten, comes from that passage. Now what is God saying? You are the salt of the earth. If you are righteous in a city that is evil, I will preserve the city. You are the preservative of the earth. The Jews call this tikkun olam, repairing the earth. 
preserving the earth, perfecting the earth, awaiting the Messiah to come. We keep fixing it the best we can, knowing that we can't fix it completely. But by our righteous acts, Israel says, we are keeping the judgment of God from coming. Now, by extension, we Christians are also salt of the earth in that sense. And this could apply to us as disciples of Jesus. He also says that we are to be uh, light. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9, God says to Israel, listen, through Moses he says this, When you do my commandments, when you obey me, you will be a light to the nations. And they will say, what people has a God that is so wise? What people have a God so wonderful that he gives them these wonderful commandments by which they take care of each other? And God will be sanctified Before the nations. He will be made holy. And he will be glorified. Before the nations. So Jews first. And we Christians. uh, Also have a responsibility. And this responsibility. Involves being public. To the extent. That what we do. Is seen. Now not seen of men. In the sense of. Hey look at me. But that it is seen of men. In hey look at what our God. Has done. So that your light so shines that men see your good works. They know it didn't come from you. It comes from the commandments of God. And therefore God is glorified. Which is why to have a faith that doesn't keep the commandments of God. Not for salvation. But for expression is no faith at all. And that's why James says. Show me your faith without your works. Can't do it. I will show you my faith by my works. Works to get saved? Of course not. By grace we have been saved. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. Therefore, whoever teaches and does these will be great in the kingdom. And whoever drops them off and tells other people not to do them will be least In the kingdom of heaven. There is a public ministry. Of being obedient to God. In our life. When we walk out the door. Now there are a lot of people that say. I keep the commandments of God in my home. And when I'm in Rome. I do as the Romans do. You've got it backwards. Actually you don't have it backwards. You've got it wrong. (laughs) You're not supposed to live like hell in your home. And live godly in public. That's hypocrisy. That's the outer being the whitewashed sepulchers and inside are dead men's bones. But we are to walk out of our homes as an emissary of God. As an apostle of God. As the word of God, the epistle of God written with God's word written on our hearts. So that as we act and as we do, they will see that God is in us. And so the reason for public ministry is the reputation of God. Not our reputation. The reputation of God. Now, how do we engage in public ministry? 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. Should read the whole passage, but we don't have time. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But be aware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts, they will scourge you in the synagogues, you will even be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to say. Uh, Because you'll be trained in the four spiritual laws. doesn't say that. Uh, It will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. It is not you who speak. It is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death. And the father is child. And children will rise up against parents. And cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But the one who has endured to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one city... Flee to the next, and I tell you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, this is a sending out of the twelve disciples temporarily, kind of a uh, a brief missions uh, exposure class uh, for them to uh, minister the gospel uh, and to proclaim the kingdom. And it is for them to kind of get their feet wet in ministry. But in the instructions, Jesus is talking about more than just this little trip that's in the context. He's talking about when they will uh, become witnesses in all the world uh, to him. Now, we have very clear instructions, he says. When you go into public ministry, uh, there is a vulnerability there. And he describes that as sheep among wolves. So we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And as I've often said, most believers when they go in the public arena are dumb as an ox and like a bull in a china shop. Uh, We think that we'll do what the world does, throw a Bible verse on it, we'll get their attention, and all we do is irritate them. It's like teaching a pig to sing. It doesn't work and it irritates the pig. So we've got to be really careful about this. We're supposed to be wise in this. Jesus knew when not to be public. And he knew when to speak. He knew when his time had come and when it hadn't. He knew how to be in season and out of season. And we should be wise, but we're not. Because instead of using biblical training for our public ministry, we use marketing training for our public ministry. And marketing is of the world. And so whatever they get a slogan, we come up with a Christian version of it. Got milk, got Jesus, isn't that clever? Okay? And then we think that it's wonderful. You know? And every day on Facebook I see a new person coming out with a new line of Christian clothing. Our clothing is holiness and righteousness, not slogans on t-shirts. But, That's too much work. We have to study the word. We have to do the word. It's easier just to put a t-shirt on. Then you have to be careful where you are with that t-shirt. So, in explaining ministry to others in this context, and if you'll read the whole chapter, you'll see that Jesus basically makes a distinction between ministry 
and, and business. And let me give you the quick thing. If I do something for you, if I feed you, if I paint your house, if I do anything for you at my expense, it's ministry. If I do it at your expense, it's business. Okay? So if I go into a church and I sing for $10,000 or $5,000 or $100, I'm engaged in business. If I go there on my dollar and, and minister to them, I'm ministering to them. Now there are exceptions. They are allowed to cover your immediate expense of that day. Okay? And I don't have time to go into that. But Jesus gives us an enormous amount of understanding of how we do public ministry. And we don't, we have followed the marketing capitalist system and think we're doing the work of God and we're actually doing our own work. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 and he gives them almost the same instructions. Freely you have given, freely give, don't collect gold and silver, uh, don't take a purse to, to, like a bank account to, to build it up when you minister, all of those kinds of things. Um, so, ministry is doing good to people by obeying the commandments uh, and being identified with God by obeying the commandments. And the result is that God will be praised in that, uh, in that context. Now, once we are being salt and light, that is, we are preserving the world by our righteousness so that God is not judging them for their sin, awaiting them to turn to His grace and mercy. Because we are objects of His grace and mercy, and they see that. And when we are light of who God is, because if they have seen us, they have seen the Father. Wow. So who's your father? If you act like the devil, he's your father. If you act like God, he's your father. The family resemblance should be in our behavior. So that through the children, they know the parent in that context. But there is more to that because it brings about the opportunity to share the good news. I want you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 15, says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now what did God say to them uh, in Deuteronomy? You will sanctify me, in their eyes, when you obey my commandments, here Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord. Not as Savior, as Lord. Means, I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to be obedient to him. And he said, don't avoid the commandments. Teach them and do them. And he says... Went to the wrong chapter, sorry. Sanctify him in your heart, always ready to make a defense or an, a, 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 an explanation to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and reverence. See the 
wise as serpents, harmless as doves? Be careful when you give a response to why are you acting the way you are. Why are you acting in this way? Why are you doing this good? Why are you being holy? We are being holy because He is holy. We are doing righteousness because He is righteous. Uh, Not because of us. We are the same as you. We have these struggles. But we are striving towards this because that's who our Father is. Tell me more about Him. Well, I have good news for you. The good news is He sent His Son to deal with our sin that we might become His children, right? It's not a go knock on the door and let me tell you some good news. Hey, I'm watching the news in here. I'm fixing dinner. Yeah, but I got great news. It's not that great a news when you're driving me crazy with it. Okay? So the idea is, if we go out in the public arena and act like God's children, really act like God's children, that's going to be different. And so people are going to say, why are you like this? And then you have a reason and an answer that you give them. If you don't have people asking you why you act the way you do when you're obeying the commandments, then you're living in a cave somewhere. But if you have to chase them down to tell them I have a track for you of good news, it's because they don't know you from Adam and you haven't impressed them with your behavior. So this has much to do with our public witness of the good news that I'm going to talk more about next week. So let me talk about what constitutes public ministry. The best way to think of public versus private ministry is in this context. Private ministry is doing good to and for your household, your extended family, your congregational members, and in cases where you know believers in other congregations, where you actually have a relationship, that's all really private ministry. Private ministry is what we should be about all the time because we are ministering to one another. We are commanded to love one another, to do good for one another. Public ministry is doing good to all people those identified as believers and those who are not believers. And so in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says to us in verse 9 and 10, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Take care of your own and go beyond. We learn in our households to obey the commandments, doing good for one another, loving one another. We love our neighbor as ourself. In Luke 10, when I talked about that, the story of the Good Samaritan is there. And the guy said, Wait, who's my neighbor? And Jesus makes it somebody in need that you don't know. So it extends beyond just helping those that you know and like. Even to the biblical commandment of if your enemy thirsts, give him a drink. If he's hungry, feed him. 
These are very simple, practical things. Public ministry is doing good beyond the private community. Now, what is good? And this I'm going to end. We already talked about Matthew 5, 19 and 20. Doing good and being holy are following the commandments as we are um, taught them. Um, And Paul makes it clear that we are to do this as we have opportunity. I think it really is uh, a problem that we now don't think of ministry as opportunity. We think of ministry as structures. What ministry do you belong to? Oh, we have a shelter ministry. We have a, a, a food ministry. We have an uh, unwed mother's ministry. All of these are good. Don't, don't get me wrong. Not against them. But the danger is, what we do is, we just send some money to them and say we've done it. And the reality is, our behavior is to be ministry. Our behavior is to be ministry. And we don't have to have a business card for that. And we don't have to have it organized. So those of us who are not that organized can still have ministry. And so, ministry can be both opportunistic. I have an opportunity. have the ability to help somebody. I will do it. And it can be organized and structured. I'm going to systematically get myself to this kind of ministry. Both of those are appropriate. And we should be doing both. Therefore, you can help someone who needs food by giving them food. You can also go to a, a shelter and, and a soup kitchen and work there. Both of those are legitimate. The one that's the most biblical is the doing it because you see somebody who's hungry and you feed them. The other one is Christian. It's something that the church organized. We, God works through people and people work through organizations. We always think we have to organize. Now let's get organized. You know, I used to have a sign that said, now that we're organized, what do we do? Right? That once you start an organization, bureaucracy sets in and then structure and then who's in charge and that's not my job and all of that happens. But, but if you just say, if the person in front of me is hungry, I feed them. If the person in front of me falls down, I pick them up. I don't say, hey, there, we, have a, we have a ministry for picking up people who have fallen down. Let me call them. Right? We get overly structured here. I want you to participate in structured ministries all over. But I also want you to think of yourself as a minister on patrol all the time. We can help someone who needs shelter by getting them a room for the night. We can also serve in a shelter ministry. Both of those are fine. The key to this is gifting and resources. If you're not that hospitable, you may want to work more with stuff than with people, right? But the idea is that you take an assessment of your own gifting, your own abilities, and you do what you can do. If you're very good at painting, you can paint. I don't mean drawing. I mean painting, you can can do that. If you're a person who, when you paint, there's paint everywhere, that might not be your ministry, right? No one's going to pay you to do it for a reason. It probably shouldn't do it for God. We have a tendency to say, Nobody will pay me to do it, but I want to do it, so I'll do it for God. God deserves our best. Whatever you do best is what you should be doing in ministry. So, DC members are involved in public ministry at opportunistic and organized levels. At present, our media team 
and our counseling teams are more organized structures and, and provide that. But we have people who aren't part of that, who are MFTs and, and uh, do media stuff, and they do it for other churches, and they provide it for uh, other people as, as part of their own ministry. It doesn't have to be organized. It just has to be done. Organized public ministry is presently under scrutiny by the government, and such approaches may not be easily established in the future. There are states already where Catholic charities have ceased to exist because the government is putting parameters on them that won't allow them to do what God wants them to do, and therefore they have to give up that ministry and find another way to do that where they can. Uh, But opportunity is always present and no organization or structure is needed. If we become illegal in this country, and I'm not predicting we will, but if it would happen, it would not stop us from public ministry. It would mean that we'd have to be very wise and very harmless so that we stay off the radar thought I was going to get through one without that. Without, uh, without uh, ending up in jail. So, uh, public ministry is an important part of what we do. The private congregation is not to avoid public ministry, but to make it clear when we're in public and when we're in uh, private congregation. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.